Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. Good morning. Again, my name is Rob. I'm one of the Robs, uh, the larger of the two. Um, And I'll be leading us this morning through a couple of parables of Jesus. If you have your Bibles and would like to turn, we're going to be in Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. Um, And then, so while you're doing that, if you've got your Bible or your uh, Bible apps too, totally, totally cool. Um, While you're looking for that, I'll just mention really quickly that uh, for this teaching specifically, and I'm in seminary right now, so citation is important. And I was like, how do I cite? my sources in a sermon. And I didn't feel right about as much as I used of this one person, so I wanted to tell you guys. Um, Dr. Tim Gombis, he's a Bible scholar. He's got a wonderful podcast. Uh, most recent podcast was really influential for me in this sermon. So I just wanted to give him a shout-out. If you want to check that out, it's called Faith Improvised. It's a wonderful podcast, really good Bible teaching. Check it out. Um, but yeah, quite a few of the thoughts and points I'm giving today are his. Um, so if you need more information, let me know. I'll put you in that direction. All right, so we're going to get started. So let's join me in prayer, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for it's a beautiful day, um, even though we need the snow. <laughs> but we'll enjoy this 67-degree day in February. Um, God, I just pray for every person here, myself included. God, we need your spirit to move in us, for me to speak, for those to receive and hear and listen to what you have to teach us today. So Holy Spirit, we just, we rely on you. We need you. We love you. And we're so thankful, God, that you, that you meet with us when, when two or three are gathered. You are here. You are present with us, God. And we just want to give you all the praise and glory in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. So like I said, we're going to be in Luke 15. Uh, 1 through 10 today, parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. So I'm going to read those parables. There's going to be plenty of Bible reading today. We're going to read a little bit more than just that. Um, but these are pretty short. So uh, Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need not repent. Or suppose a woman woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the, in the, presence of the angels, over God, angels of God over one sinner who repents. All right, so I think it's important to understand and identify up front what our first impressions or presumptions are of a text. And I think this is especially important when we're reading the parables. Um, so we're going to do that. So I just want to let you guys know that there are several takes on these parables, too, over the last two millennia. So, um, I mean, just giants in theological interpretation of the last 2,000 years have had very, very different takes on what these things mean. So let's dig into some context, too. So like I said, I'm in seminary, so biblical context is huge right now. It's kind of where my mind goes. Um, So I'm going to read for us pretty quickly chapter 14. It's kind of long, 
But um, I think it's important just to get some context of, of what Jesus is doing, who he's talking to, um, and the way Luke kind of compiles this information for us. So bear with me. I'm going to read Luke 14 for us. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into the well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? They had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, or a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table heard him, heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I am on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes, and compel them to come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning... Turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Or if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able, with his 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation, while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears, let them hear. All right. So just a couple of important things that I wanted to point out about Luke 14. 
At the beginning of the chapter, he's having dinner at the home of a prominent Pharisee and teaching them parables. Now, a lot of us probably know what a Pharisee is, but in case you don't, the Pharisees were a group of Jewish uh, Jewish religious leaders that adhered very strictly to the ancient laws that were given to Moses, called the Torah. Um, and then something else to point out, in Luke 14.25, we see that Jesus is traveling with a large crowd. Perhaps this is the next day, we don't know for sure, but as we get to the beginning of chapter 15, a very important piece of information is recorded for us before the parables begin. So in Luke 15.1 and 2, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So we've all read this before, I'm sure, um, probably shook our heads and muttered, stupid Pharisees, they don't know what they're talking about. This is Jesus. Um, but what you may not have had a full grasp of, I surely didn't, is the extent of why this mattered culturally. In the ancient world, it was universally believed that essentially, who you eat with is who you are. So you only dine, meet at the table with people of your status, who you are comfortable associating yourself with. So let that sink in for a minute. We need to remember that we are reading an ancient document telling stories of real people in real time and a real culture very, very differently than ours. Now, a huge aspect of that culture is honor and shame. The people of this area at this time were all consumed with honor, accumulation, and increasing their status socially. Um, and not just in the religious, the Judaism, it was in the, the Roman culture, the Greek culture as well. It was rampant in that, in that area, in that time, that you were trying to climb the social ladder for honor, and you were you know, shoving shame as far away from you as you possibly could. Um, yeah, so it was a huge motivating factor for people every day. So this is an important fact to remember when you're reading the scriptures. So even one of Paul's letters, uh, the Old Testament, this is a very, very important lens from which to view scriptures, this honor-shame dynamic. Um, so with that in mind, let's try to put ourselves in the shoes of these Pharisees and the teachers of the law for a moment. So, according to their honor-shame system, they had pretty much been killing it, right? They're well-studied, well-read, they're well-respected, they've obeyed the Torah better than anyone else, um, and they've gained for themselves great status and prestige. So if this was a game of who was most honorable, it appeared they were winning. And then here comes Jesus. He comes in not really caring about their system. He's performing miracles. He's raising people from the dead, healing them driving out demons, and teaching from their Torah and Hebrew scriptures with authority. So they had to have been asking themselves, and they did in some recorded spots in the New Testament, is he a prophet? Some say he's the Messiah, the long-awaited chosen one that the prophet spoke about in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. And they had to have been thinking, what do we do with this guy? They must have been sizing him up. Who is he really? And then maybe without even knowing it, they had to start thinking about him from their cultural lens. Will associating with him improve our status? Is he really, if he really is from God, we want to make sure we're on the right side of history on this. And then he should also, if he is from God, recognize us as Pharisees, right? He, they, he needs to give us the respect that we have earned. Let's invite him to have a meal with us. He's at least worth that. And then during the meal we read, in chapter 14, Jesus began teaching them that the kingdom of God, his kingdom, wasn't what they thought it ought to have been. It was upside down. It couldn't be contained 
into their honor-shame box. And in fact, he flipped it entirely on its head. These Pharisees began to doubt that Jesus was willing to play the game. You remember the game that they were winning. And in the interest of preserving their honor and prominent status, they must have determined it wise to begin distancing themselves from him. They started to control the narrative. We see in the beginning of chapter 15, it says, again, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So they're starting to make up their mind about Jesus. And they're like, maybe this isn't our guy. All right, we're going to want to, you know, he's not playing by our rules. If he gets what he wants, we're going to lose. Um, These Pharisees began to doubt that Jesus was willing to play the game that they were winning. Then Jesus begins to tell the parable of the lost sheep. And he begins the parable of the lost sheep masterfully. He understands what they're thinking. And he says, and check this out, don't miss this. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Stop there. Don't even finish the sentence. As I was researching for this sermon, I ran across some really fascinating things. It was news to me, but in the Jewish culture, as recorded in extra-biblical Hebrew literature, amongst the most shameful, despicable occupations one can have during this time was a herdsman or a shepherd. And Jesus goes, imagine one of you has a hundred sheep. So I don't know what the equivalent occupation of that would be today. Maybe a sanitation worker, someone who rides a garbage truck. My dad used to shake his head looking at my report card and say, the world needs ditch diggers. Uh, no offense to sanitation workers or ditch diggers. Very, very important things. So then Jesus starts this parable off with a jab. He knocks them on their heels a little bit. Now that they're off balance, he begins to teach them in parables about what God values most, which is counter to what general wisdom would prescribe. Would a shepherd really risk his entire flock for one sheep? This is kind of what we were talking about earlier. A herd of 100 sheep was like lower middle class. This wasn't a ton of, uh, of wealth. Um, so it wasn't this, yeah, this person wasn't especially wealthy. So 1% of his flock, was it worth risking 99% of his net worth to go find this one? Probably not a great business decision. Or the woman with the lost coin. Why would she spend presumably two or three coins worth to buy food and drink to celebrate with her friends and neighbors over finding one coin? doesn't make any sense. That's a net loss. There are so many ways these parables have been interpreted. So many things we could unpack. So many theological, massive implications here. But what we're going to do today, for the sake of this morning, is we're going to zoom, zoom way out. And the point I want to focus on is that God values people. We are his image bearers, his chosen stewards of creation, his most beloved creatures. We are, in the eyes of God, very good. As he says in Genesis, when he him. and one of the lessons in these stories that we should that we should take is the shepherd and the woman's example to lovingly welcome, accept, and pursue those that conventional wisdom might suggest aren't worth the effort, as God does. May not always be a wise use of resources, but isn't that part of what it means to be a Christian? To ascribe value to things that are folly to this world. To see the injustices done to our fellow image bearers and all of creation and say, we're not okay with that. To those the society is content to stand, leave, uh, leave standing in the margins, say, I value you. And then prove it. So earlier we talked about the cultural significance of sharing a meal with certain people and what that said about who you are. And I think these two parables are metaphorically describing people that the Pharisees wouldn't be caught dead sharing a meal with. Right? If you could parse this out, 
the one sheep that wanders away is not, not going to be invited to have a meal with the Pharisees. Um, and the lesson for us is to be a good Christian, and that means wel- welcoming all to our table. Some of your responses we're getting, we're absolutely nailing them. Even those, even seeking those to invite to our table that society or mainstream Christianity doesn't deem worth our time or effort. The only example we have of human beings being truly good to one another is Genesis 1 and 2. And um, they, Adam and Eve, they were naked. They had no shame. They had nothing to hide. They weren't a threat to one another. They had a dynamic of mutuality, seemingly, of seeking the best for one another. There were no hidden agendas or manipulations. No one was plotting to exploit the other to climb the honor-shame ladder. And you might say, well, Rob, I mean, that you just looked a lot into that passage that wasn't in there. But then the rest of Genesis gives us plenty of examples of all of those things, manipulation, you know, exploiting each other. And, and before, you know, original sin, this is, you know, it's safe to assume that they were just good to one another, enjoying each other's presence. Um, but we live in a very different world than Genesis 1 and 2. And, and so, so do these Pharisees and, and the times when the New Testament was written. So how do we, though, in 2022, live out our redeemed Christian identity to truly welcome all of God's valued people to the table? So I mentioned Tim Gombas earlier. He's got a few ideas on this, and I like them. So here we, here we go. Um, first, Christians are disciples, and disciples are learners. Learners of the scriptures, learners of God, yes, but also of one another. Let's have a posture of reception towards each other. Let's seek to hear and learn each other's stories. Learn from each other. No one is the master of anyone else. I don't care if it's the Apostle Paul himself or my five-year-old daughter. Everyone has something they can learn from someone else. If we have that posture. Second, Christians are guests at Christ's scandalous table. The table is scandalous because of who is there. Tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners of all kinds. And we are sinners of the foremost. Remember, the Pharisees were appalled at who was invited to dine with Jesus. Third, at this wonderful metaphorical table, let's be a good table guest. Let's be polite to one another. And remember, at this table, you and I are not the waiter, we're not the owner, we're not the bouncer, or the maitre d'. You are a guest, and so am I. And guess what? We have no say in who's invited. Fourth, be a good sinner. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. Let's seek to become better at identifying with other sinners. The Apostle Paul was a master at this. Let's take his example. Let's become all things to all people. Meet people where they are. Bear each other's burdens. Uh, Repent and apologize to each other when you hurt each other. And forgive. Fifth, allow yourself to be shaped by other people. Allow God to transform you, not just by the Holy Spirit, which he does and in a powerful way, or by reading the scriptures, but do that too, but by each other. God speaks to us, loves us, teaches us, lifts us up through each other. The brothers and sisters around you are a gift from God to you and you to them. I want to stop and spend a minute on this one. Do we really believe that? 
Do I really believe that I am a gift to my brothers and sisters? How would that change my mindset when I walked into work, school, here at church on a Sunday morning? I'd give myself a little pep talk, maybe. Right? Sitting in your car, looking in the mirror. I am a gift. Let me seek to be that gift this morning. I mean, it's it's kind of countercultural, right? Like, we're called to be humble, but we are humble. You are still a gift to each other. Um, and let others be a gift to you. It's powerful. I promise. If you see each other that way, it's so powerful. These are all ways that we are called to interact with each other as a faith community. But what do we do with outsiders? And by outsiders, I mean those that wouldn't identify as Christian. And we can't always use some of this language, right? Um, But we need to gain the skills of loving other people. You might be asking yourself, how do we know that we are loving them well? Or I think I am, you know, how do I know? What do you guys think? Ask them. I bet if you ask non-religious people in your lives how well or not so well they have been loved by Christians, you might not enjoy their answers. We have to change this. The community gets to decide when we love them well. Let's serve together and show the justice and love of God to this valley. Let's welcome them to our table. Um, so I've got about a five-minute warning. Um, because God the Son... <clears throat> And I want to get into some of this why, right? I just spent probably five, ten minutes talking about things that we want to do, that we need to do, that because of who Jesus is and what he's called us to do, we need to respond. But it's important, ultimately important, to really marinate in the why. And here's the why. Because God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, stepped down from his throne, he humbled himself by taking the form of an infant. He lived the life of infinite humility and faithful obedience. And even to the point of relinquishing his status of being in the very nature of God, he made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. And in order to leave the 99 to come get you, me, and kindred church and all of creation for ultimate redemption, he was obedient to death. Even death on a cross. And he is redeeming the world inviting you and me to participate in this redemption process along with him. The church is to be God's right-making social justice to the world, and we at Kindred are committed to preach that kingdom reality. You see, Jesus understood full well the culture in which he entered into. He knew that his sheep valued honor and prestige, status and respect, that we would step on each other's necks at any chance to improve our position in this world, to accumulate maybe stuff and money or status and prestige. And he knew that the biggest impact he could make was to come and inaugurate his kingdom, a kingdom that was established and sustained by himself being made low. By being exalted, enthroned, and lifted high by the greatest vehicle of lowly shame known to the ancient world, death on a cross. Do you guys see that? Those that humble themselves will be exalted because it is those that participate in the kingdom the way the king created it. When we lay our lives down and pour ourselves out for the sake of others, we are uniting ourselves to Christ in a death like his so that we can take part in his resurrected upside-down kingdom. Those that eat with the sinners look each other in the eye and say, I love you. You are valuable. How can I show you I love you better? 
How can I serve you? And then listen. Those are the ones that understand God's upside down kingdom. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.